We are in our final um, section this morning for First Samuel. If you can go ahead and turn to First Samuel chapter 28 for me. As you kind of notice, what we did there's a this last these last few chapters um, kind of have a section in the middle of them that we're going to address today, and so basically we've sort of, um, in some respects, finished a chunk of the book last week, but. We're in chapter 28 today and then chapter 31, the very, very end of the the book. And to be real frank, this is a rather solemn passage today because it deals with the death death of Saul and his sons. It really shouldn't surprise us, though, because if you remember, Saul had been warned that he was on a dangerous path with God. We've seen Saul... Um, start uh, in this in this amazing way, if you will. We have this young, humble man who gets selected by God to lead Israel. We have Sam, Samuel go and find him and anoint him. And if you remember, he was just that. He was this genuinely sincere, um, somewhat humble individual. In fact, after um, Samuel anoints him with oil and he goes back home and one of his dad's workers asks him, you know, where have you been? Where have you been? What have you done? He doesn't mention anything. Um, specifically about what Samuel had said to him, and so he kind of kept it to himself. And so he had um, he started off as this um, humble, gracious man who God had selected to be king, the first king over Israel. Um, but then, almost immediately from that point on, we see him struggle with his relationship with God, and we see how he goes from um, this gracious, humble individual to this rebellious, disobedient, self-driven, arrogant, foolish, prideful king. In fact, God finally warns him that he's going to rip the kingdom out of his hands and give it to David, who he says would be a better king and a man after God's own heart. So for a man who... Essentially, it started off with so much humility and promise, we find his life actually end tragically today. So we're going to look at that and see what we can learn from it. The first thing I want to point out is is just some principles that I think we'll, we'll kind of draw through this. And the first one is this, that sometimes um, desperate people do desperate things, and that's what we find with Saul. So if I'm going to summarize this first section or the first four or five verses, it would be this. Saul was a desperate man facing a desperate situation, so he did a desperate thing. Let's look at this, the first three uh, three or four verses or so. First Samuel chapter 28, starting in verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Geboah. The author gives us two pieces of information in this text this morning as we start off that are going to be important for us. The first one is this, that Samuel was dead. Well, the reason that's kind of important for us here is because Samuel was Saul's primary mouthpiece. In other words, he was the way that God spoke with Saul, was specifically through the prophet Samuel. And so with Samuel now gone, um, Saul becomes sort of desperate to hear the voice of God, and he's not going to hear it from Samuel, so he does some other things, and we'll see why that becomes important here in a little bit. The second thing we'll see here is that Saul actually had removed all of the mediums from the land. Now this is important for two primary reasons. The first one is that it demonstrates that Saul was familiar with the law 
and its prohibition against such things. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 18, we're in verse 9. This is God spelling out the law for the Israelites, giving it to them before they entered the land, which is where Saul is now. It says in verse 9 of chapter 18, Deuteronomy, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That's basically child sacrifices. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritus, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. So basically what we see here is that the law prohibited the use of diviners and mediums and spiritists calling up the dead. Because that's what the Canaanites did. Instead, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28 there that God would provide prophets for them to speak to them. You wanted to hear the voice of God, you wanted counsel from God, you would have the prophets speak. So Saul was aware of that because the text here tells us this morning that Saul had removed all of them from the land, all the mediums and spiritists. Now remember, this is a guy who wasn't specifically obedient, was struggling, and yet he somehow uh, knew the law well enough to drive out all the mediums and spiritists from the land. That's going to become critical for us here. He clearly knew the law, and acted upon it to remove them from the land. And what it reveals about him is that what he's going to do next is an egregious, willful, deliberate act of disobedience because he's desperate. So what happens? The Philistines were preparing a massive attack. We learned that in the beginning of chapter 28 here. They had become emboldened because David had been in the land with them and um, they thought David was on their side. So they become emboldened and they put together a massive army now to go and attack Israel. And so then we come to verse 4 and we read this. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Geboah. When Saul saw that the camp of the Phil- or saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So there's this massive army. As Saul is facing off against this army, he's afraid. It says that his heart trembled greatly. He's petrified at this point. Probably because he realizes it's a much bigger army, they're a much more brutal army. And they've amassed together, probably all five of the lords together. But before this, it was typically small little skirmishes and battles with the different lords. There were five lords of the Philistines, five fortified cities. And they would go out and attack parts of Israel. Well, now they're all kind of coming together with one massive attack. And so it says that Saul is greatly afraid, his heart trembling. That's quite a contrast to what we see with Saul elsewhere. If you remember how it all started in 1 Samuel 14, it says this, Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all of his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Eden, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, and he delivered Israel from the hands of all those who plundered them. He was this fantastic warrior, bold and confident, going out and and leveling cities and demolishing his enemies. And now we find him cowering because he's afraid. 
I think that might reflect where he was in his relationship with God at this point. I think it's pretty clear. So he does something that you might expect in some respects. Verse 6, it says he decides to consult the Lord, but guess what? The Lord remains silent and doesn't answer him. So verse 6, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. There's an aspect of desperation here, because Saul actually tries three possible means of hearing from the Lord. The first one is dreams. The second one is the Urim, which are these little dice-like things that they would cast to see what the Lord's will was. And then he sought out other prophets in the land to see if they would speak. But it says that the Lord remained silent. He didn't speak to him. Saul should have learned that. The Lord had rejected him. You remember back in chapter 15, it says that the Lord had rejected him. Why don't you go ahead and turn there. 15.23 Chapter 15, verse 23 says this. And you can keep your finger there. We'll come back to this briefly. But chapter 15, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Isn't that rather interesting? He's talking about the Lord is is judging Samuel here for his rebelliousness. And actually says it's kind of like divination, which is what we find Saul about ready to get involved with. Any, or, and insubordination as is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Jump up to verses 28 and 29. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. If you look down the page just a little bit to chapter one or chapter sixteen, verse one, it says, "Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among the nations." So what we basically find is God had made it absolutely clear to Samuel and to Saul that Saul was no longer his anointed over Israel. He let him stay in that role as king, but he certainly wasn't speaking to him anymore. And so when Saul uses these three means to try to get God to talk to him, God just remains silent. Saul does not hear anything. So in his desperation, it says in verse 7, you could flip to verse 7 of chapter 28, it says, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. A medium was somebody who claimed to be able to conjure up the dead, to speak to the dead. That's why the author's comments in verse 3 are so important. Because Saul knew better than what he was doing here. The very thing he knew displeased God. The very thing that he heard was detestable. The very thing that he had acted upon to kick out all the mediums. He was now acting upon. Go find one for me. Now, obviously, he wasn't very successful kicking them all out, but apparently they had probably all either disappeared or gone underground or stopped operating, if you will. He had to send his men, and they knew about this woman in Endor who happened to be a a medium. And so he decides he wants to set out and to find her. I think the author wants us to see that what Saul does here is this deliberate, again, willful act of disobedience. He knew he shouldn't have done it, but he was desperate. 
He wanted to hear from God. But God wouldn't talk to him. So he was going to find a way that he could talk to God, at least in his mind. And I think the author, the reason he starts out the chapter by saying, Saul had kicked them all out, was he wants us to see the severity of this and the fact that this was a deliberate act of sin to show the the place that Saul had ended up. And it's also going to help us understand why God's judgment against him is so harsh. Because ultimately, in the end, God takes his life. So the author sets this up. This was not just some simple act of disobedience. This was willful and complete disregard. The only way I can say, the only way I can sort of help make sense out of this for us is um, think of any number of sins in your mind that you know are, are, I'll say, hideous, grievous to the Lord. And think of yourself going and doing it anyway. Knowing all along that this is not something God is going to be happy with. That's what we have here in Saul. He knew better. But because he was desperate, he did a desperate thing. So what happens? Well, Saul disobeys the Lord by consulting this medium. Look at verses 8 through 19. Chapter 28, verse, starting in verse 8. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went. He and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night and said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me the one whom I name you. Now, what's really important about this, there's a number of things, and this goes to what we often do. When we sin, like, Paul, like Saul is sinning here, often we go to great lengths to cover that sin up. And there's a number of things here that Saul actually does. In one case here, it says that he disguised himself. Now, there's two reasons for this. One is he probably didn't want the medium to know, because think about it. This could be a trap, right? The king kicks all the mediums out, so you kind of stay on the down low. But then the king shows up on your door, knows you're a medium. It could be a trap, right? So that's one reason why. But he also had to go through Philistine territory to get to Endor. And he probably didn't want the Philistines to know that it was the king walking through because they would have taken his life. So he disguises himself. Another thing he does is he only takes two men with him, which is rather strange because he should have traveled with a much larger contingent of soldiers around him to protect him. He didn't want to draw attention to himself, so he just takes two men to maybe protect him. He also happens to go at night. Night conceals, doesn't it? You know, you know, if there wasn't a problem with this, he could have just gone to the, the, the witch or whatever during the middle of the day, knocked on her door in broad daylight and says, hey, you got to do some job for me here. I need to talk to somebody. But he doesn't. He does it at night. Why? It's under the cover of night. That's when sin, under the cover, right? So he does that. So, give another example here of him knowing that it was wrong. And he goes off and he finds this woman. He tells her to conjure up. Let's finish reading some of these verses here. He says, Conjure up for me, verse 8, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name for you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spirits from the, spirits from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come to you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. Now there's some irony in this too. You notice when this woman objects, she objects because she knows that Saul has kicked them all out. She doesn't know it's Saul at this point, but she's thinking, This might very well be a trap. But how does Saul comfort her? What's the phrase he uses? What's that? As the Lord lives. But then he says, certainly no punishment will come to you. Maybe not from him. 
But he doesn't say, I won't hurt you. He doesn't say, the king won't hurt you, or the king won't know about it. It's as the Lord lives, no punishment's going to come to you. Meaning, there's nothing to fear. The Lord, the king, me. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? Because of what we just read in the law? Of course not. Saul knew. He kicked all the mediums out because he knew God wasn't happy with the mediums. I have to believe that this is probably not so much outright lying to her as much as it is total deception. Saul at this point is completely deceived. If, if anything, maybe he's just thinking about himself and how I won't do anything. He's not even considering the fact that the Lord is just, just despises what he's asking this woman to do. Makes me wonder about some some pastors in leadership today when we hear some of what's taught or um, some of what's encouraged and wondering sometimes um, if we really think outside of our little circles and wonder, well, how does God really think about this? And I don't think that Saul was necessarily considering that. He was thinking only about himself at this point. So he's leading this woman into sin. So she finally relents. She's willing to do it and asks who should he bring up or who should she bring up. And he says, Samuel. So she goes to work. Verses 12 and following says this. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Now immediately a couple of questions kind of pop up here. Some question what happened, and wonder whether or not it really was Samuel. And there's all kinds of interpretations about this. Some say that this definitely was Samuel. Some say that it was probably a um, demons or deception of some kind because people can't conjure up the dead. Um, problem is that everything in this text indicates that it was Samuel. Um, the woman's shock, I believe, indicates that she wasn't expecting to see a dead dude show up. Which probably means that most of the time, Spiritists and mediums, as they conjure up things, most of it's probably fake. Okay, now they'll tell you they see your dead grandmother and they can talk to you. You know, much of that is charlatry and hoaxes. Um, there used to be a woman on 23 who would drive by every day, a spiritist, and she would have her little sign out front. You know, and it's funny because when her sign disappeared and she closed up shop, I wondered to myself, if she was a spiritist, wouldn't she have known? <laughs> wouldn't she be able to predict that ahead of time? You know, but. Um, most of that's probably charlatry. Now, that doesn't mean it's not involved with demonology and other things. But I would suspect that most of them probably don't see real dead people. And part of that's because of the rest of my theology and what the scriptures teach. But four times in the text, it specifically calls this person Samuel, which is another indicator that it's probably him. In fact, in verse 17, you hear this, The Lord has done according to as he spoke through me. So even this entity claims to have been Samuel, behaves like Samuel, acts like Samuel, talks like Samuel. In fact, he actually repeats much of what the Lord has already said. And then the last thing, the last indicator is Saul is completely convinced that it's Samuel as well. 
And so every indicator in this text is that this was indeed Samuel. Now, I'm not sure what that does um, in terms of um, trying to settle the issue. Can people really talk to the dead? Can they really bring up mediums? Um, I was raised in a Catholic tradition where um, it's fairly common to pray to dead saints, which oftentimes translates into things like, um, you know, talking to dead relatives, um, something I don't believe is possible. Um, but we have this instance here. I would suspect that this is a, what I'm going to call a one-off. There's only one other instance that I can think of in the scriptures where somebody who is living talks to somebody who is dead. Does anybody know when that is? What happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? Do you remember that? Where Jesus is speaking with two individuals, and who are they? Moses and Elijah. Okay. Now what all three of these have in common is they're Old Testament saints. When the Old Testament saints died, they went to a place called Sheol, which had two compartments, basically. One was where they rested and waited to be basically redeemed and taken to heaven, ultimately, I believe, with the resurrection of Christ. Because when Christ was rose, it says that a lot of the Old Testament saints came up and walked on the planet, walked around. Okay? The other place was that basically it was a, a not a good place, the equivalent to the hell today, where they would go and wait judgment. Okay? But we're told in the New Testament that today, when you die, you go be immediately with Christ in his presence, or you go to hell, which is a holding place before being cast into the lake of fire. So things have changed. Okay? And that's why I say that transfiguration and even this are referring to old... I mean, the, the three individuals that were conjured up, if you will, are all Old Testament saints. Okay? So I believe that was possible. But I think for us today, if we start thinking about that, whether it's possible to conjure up the dead or talk to the dead, I would say probably not. And most of the time, if indeed it looks like that, it's likely demons and other things, demonic activity. Okay? Um, but I wouldn't use this passage to support the fact that people can talk to the dead, as some do. So, now, what's interesting about this is that he's involved with this despicable practice of conjuring up Samuel, but for some reason, the Lord allows him to conjure up Samuel. And so Samuel comes up, and I don't think that Saul got what he expected. In fact, it's pretty clear that he didn't. If you look at... Uh, Verses 15 through 19, there's a, three specific things that Samuel says here. If you look at verses 15 through 16, Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me through the prophets or dreams. You could add in the urn there. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known to me what I should do. So the first thing we see is Samuel's not happy about being brought back. Likely so. He's in the bosom of Abraham. Why would he want to come back and talk to Saul? So the first thing that happens is he actually rebukes Samuel for what he's done. I mean, so he rebukes Saul for what he's done. I, I get a little bit of a, a kick out of this. Because um, he says, why have you disturbed me? But the other part of this is that Saul is realizing God is not speaking to him, so he calls up the one that God has always used to speak to him. And what's interesting is that Samuel's not going to give him the answer he's looking for. So it's a fruitless endeavor here. So in some respects, I think Samuel's probably looking at him thinking, 
Why are you disturbing me? You know, I'm not going to say anything to you. God's not talking to you. And I'm God's mouthpiece. So I'm not going to talk to you. He's just basically going to lay out some judgments here, but he's not going to give him the advice he wants because Saul is looking for advice. The Lord's not talking to me. Tell me what he wants me to do. Second, he received a reminder of God's rejection. So he receives a rebuke from Samuel. He's now going to receive God's rejection. Look at verses 17 through 18. The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, or given it to your neighbor David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on uh, Malak, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So the second thing he does is he simply reminds him, you've been rejected by God. Again, Samuel's looking for advice, and what he gets is a rebuke and a rejection. All he does is repeat what God has already told him. The kingdoms are ripped out of your hands, basically. And in some respects, it's your own fault. Third thing that happens here is that he was told about his impending judgment. So this is the one new piece of information that Samuel shares with him. Look at verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So basically, he said, within 24 hours, you and your sons will be dead. So that's a new piece of information. And just as we might expect, Saul despairs at this news. If you look at verses 20 through 25. Then Saul immediately fell full length on the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten food all day or all night. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I have taken my life in my hands and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also please listen to me, the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go up on your way. But he refused, and he said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he rose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it, and she took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. A number of interesting things that happened in this particular part of the text. You notice that the thing missing from this passage, you have Samuel here, I'm sorry, Saul here, learning about his death. 24 hours is all he's got. And he apparently took it to heart in the sense that he believed it must have been true. But you notice the lack of any form of repentance? The only thing he's concerned with at this point is probably his impending death. He goes into this massive depression here. He's weak because he apparently hasn't eaten but we see that in Saul's heart here, there's no change, there's no confession, there's no turning to the Lord, there's no begging Samuel, no please. You know, it's interesting, because when, when David approached him, he at least said, yo, I've sinned against you, David, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and then he went and did it again. Did that a second time with David, and still tried to pursue David. At least there was some feigning of confession or repentance. Here, you would think if the Lord says, you've got 24 hours before you're going to see me, that there'd be something. But there's nothing. 
In fact, I, I think it's, and I've shared this before, oftentimes Hebrew authors will include things in the text to say things without actually saying things. And it's interesting here that there's more attention paid to food than anything else. Just this repetition of, he didn't eat, he was weak, and so they begged him to eat and he wouldn't eat. And so then they begged him to eat, then his own guards begged him to eat. And then she finally prepared this stuff, and he finally ate, you know. I wonder if the author is trying to point out something here. The real serious part of this text is that he just learned about his, his judgment by God. And the thing that stands out most about the text is he needs food. The author might be trying to tell us something here. You know, um, don't know exactly what it is, except that it's amazing where our attention goes sometimes. At that, this point, we really would have expected Saul, or should expect Saul, would be a broken man. He would turn to the Lord and, and beg for his forgiveness, for his mercy. And instead, I think the author reflects that Saul's heart didn't go there. And the people around him, their hearts didn't go there either. The medium, the soldiers, they were more concerned about his physical well-being and, his, and the fact that he hadn't eaten yet because he was a little bit weak. Misplaced priorities, maybe? Not sure. Well, as we might expect, the Lord is good on his word. If you turn to chapter 31... The last thing we'll look at is Saul and his sons are ultimately killed by the Philistines and the Israeli army is defeated. I'll just read through these. There's 13 verses, but let's read through them. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malachishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armbearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armbearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When his armbearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armbearer, and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboah. And they cut off his head, and they stripped off his weapons, and sent them throughout all the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of the Ashtara, and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard, those are Israelites, that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and walked all night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, And they came to Jabesh, and they burned them there. They then took their bones and buried them under the Teramish tree at Jabbath, and fasted seven days. And that's where our story ends, with Saul. So basically, the Philistines rout the Israeli army. They defeat him. Saul is badly wounded, to the point where he doesn't want to be taken captive, because he knows the brutality of the Philistines. 
So he doesn't want to face that. It doesn't say here that the arrow apparently fatally wounded him, but enough to where he probably could not have fled, and his fear was being taken captive, and that they might abuse him, torture him, whatnot. So then instead of taking his own life, he asks his arm bearer to do it, which are usually younger individuals. Remember when David was Saul's arm bearer? He was a younger child. The arm bearer obviously doesn't want to do that. So Saul finally does it himself. The arm bearer takes his life as well, probably because the arm bearer knew that the Philistines would take him and abuse him as well. But what's interesting is how this sort of ends here, because it's, again, the author's way of sort of setting up this contrast. You notice this final act of loyalty to Saul, something he didn't actually deserve. There are these men, these Israelite men, that after they learned that Saul and his sons had been killed, the Philistines come and take those bodies and they put them basically on display. They cut the head off, they mount them to the wall so everybody can see them. Um, these men learn of it. And it calls them valiant men for a reason. They had to travel through enemy Philistine territory now to recover the bodies of Saul and his three sons. And so they do that. They go on this journey. They march all day and all night. And they go into enemy territory, remove the bodies from the wall, public areas, and then they take them back. And they burn the bodies, which is, which is um, basically uh, an uh, Israelite custom to give it proper, um, to handle the dead body properly, basically. And then they take the bones back and they bury them in Israel. David's going to honor these men as you get into 2 Samuel, because of what they did. And so what's interesting is, is, even though Saul didn't deserve it, these men were considered a worthy men, valiant men, because of what they did. And so they go ahead and they honor Saul and his sons. I kind of look at that and I think, you know, Saul definitely deserved that. Or not Saul, I'm Sam, uh, Jonathan definitely deserved that, did he not? That's the saddest part of the story in some respects, is Jonathan loses his life. Um, but they, they actually honor Saul as the Lord's anointed in some respects. Um, kind of strange to me. Because again, he didn't really deserve it. I mean, think about it. He put Israel in jeopardy here. All of Israel's now been attacked and defeated because of Saul's actions. And yet these men do the right thing. I'm honoring him as their king. And so again, as you get into 2 Samuel chapter 2, you can read that on your own. David actually honors these men for what they did, which tells us a lot more about David too, does it not? So we have the stark contrast between Saul and his behavior and what he had done and these valiant men um, and what they had done to honor him. So what do we actually do with all this? Um, it's always hard with something like this, especially such a somber note. You know, how do you make sense out of this? How do we learn from this ourselves? Let me see if I can help you draw out some principles on this. Um, the first one is right from our first point today that desperation can lead us to do things that we might not normally do. Um, can even lead us to sin sometimes. I don't know if you've ever been in a spot. I won't ask you to raise your hands or volunteer information here. Um, have you ever been in a situation like that where you felt somewhat desperate or um, you did something you really knew you probably shouldn't do. Um, Saul did that. <laughs> David raised his hand. Thank you, David. Um, Saul knew that consulting mediums was forbidden. But he desperately wanted to hear from the Lord. And so he did something he shouldn't have done. You know, I think about, um, and I'll be real, real frank on this, and I'll be as generic as I can be, but 
you often hear guys justify extramarital affairs because my wife just wasn't meeting my needs. You know, and they somehow justify having those needs met um, in other ways. It's just not right. Um, they just lose their ability to think rationally and think right, you know. I once met a, and I've met more than one of these, but I, this one really struck me hard. I met a Christian woman who was um, really struggling with her relationship with her husband. She had married an unsaved man. She was raised in a Christian home. She knew it was wrong. Um, and when I asked her, I said, you know, why did you, you know, knowing that it was wrong, why did you do this? And her response was, I didn't, I didn't really expect it, but she said, well... I knew it was wrong, but I didn't want to spend the rest of my life single. And I thought, wow, you know, I mean, I understand that. I understand. I mean, I was 35 or whatever, was that? 35, I think, before I got married. And I wondered, would I spend the rest of my life single? Um, I wanted kids, and I really thought, wow, it might get to a point where I can't have kids, you know? And um, I remember thinking that and feeling that, but listening to her talk about that and just seeing the tears in her eyes and... It did not end well for her. It was a terrible, painful relationship. Um, But the desperation um, led her to do something she knew she shouldn't have done. And she found herself in a situation now having to deal with that, with the regrets and the pain and the physical abuse and other things because of choosing to marry somebody who didn't love the Lord out of desperation because she didn't want to be single the rest of her life. And she was fairly young when she got married. Um, it wasn't rational thinking, you know, but sometimes in desperation we do things that we know we shouldn't really do, and that's what we see in Saul here, and the end results normally are not good. And I'll be real frank, I've done things like that myself, where I've just, because of the way I behaved or the things that I've done, knew better. But sometimes in desperation, we do things that we shouldn't do. A second principle that we might draw from this passage today is that when we feel like God isn't listening, in all likelihood, the problem's not God. The problem's us. You know, in Saul's case, he had been warned that God even gave him an opportunity to redeem himself, if you will, with the Amalekites. And he didn't. Samuel warned him. I, I, I believe that at any point, I believe that even at this point, if Saul, when Samuel said, you've got 24 hours and you are dead meat, I think if Saul at that point would have genuinely repented, the Lord probably wouldn't have returned the kingdom to him, but his relationship with the Lord would have been restored. And the reason I believe that is because that is the way God is. We went through the book of Judges and how many times did Israel just rebel and rebel and how many times did God forgive? How many times did Jesus tell us that we are supposed to give those who offend us and sin against us? If that's what God expects of us, then what can we expect of Him? So I'm convinced that even though the consequence for Saul's behavior was that the kingdom was ripped out of his hands, I believe his relationship with the Lord would have been restored if he just finally would have said, you know what, I get it, Samuel and repented. He may have still lost his life, but at least he would stand before the Lord in a restored relationship. I don't know what happened to Saul. 
ultimately. Samuel says, today, or within 24 hours, you'll be with me. The only thing I can say about that is it meant that he would be in shale. And again, there's only two places in shale. One's the good side, one's not the good side. I don't know where Saul ultimately ended up. I have my suspicions. I suspect his ending probably wasn't well, that he will face judgment, but I can't say that. But the reality of it is that when we don't believe that the Lord is talking to us, it isn't the Lord. It wasn't in Saul's case. And I think at that point, it's probably time for us to start evaluating why isn't the Lord talking to me? Why don't I sense His presence? And start looking at us. You know, Jesus actually said in John fifteen seven, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, that's not a blanket promise that whatever we ask God for, He's going to give to us. He's talking about the relationship there. That if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, that's a reference to obedience then the relationship with Jesus is correct. It's right. But it requires that we abide in Him, but then we allow His words to abide in us. First John chapter 2, you see these two same principles at work. He says this, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. What's the promise there? That the Lord says, look, I will abide in you when you abide in me. You know, one of the things I love about this book is that we have this contrast between Saul and David. And the Lord doesn't pull any punches. He says, David is going to be better than you. Why? Because David is going to be a man after my own heart. Which means, David is going to be a man who pursues the Lord. And we see that throughout the rest of David's life, there were times where David made some grave mistakes. But we see how he handles those with repentance and pursuing the Lord. We have a whole entire book dedicated to David pouring out his heart in the Psalms. Some of those written after times of sin. And we see how he responds. right? And so, I'm convinced that while we all sin, we all struggle... Sometimes that sin is grievous enough to where it impacts that relationship with Christ to where we just don't sense His presence in our lives. And it's a mistake for us to sort of wonder like Saul, why? But instead to have to stop and reflect and simply ask ourselves, am I abiding in Christ? There's a great book I read a number of years ago years ago called When Sinners Say I Do. It's a marriage book. And what I love about the book is the author starts up by basically saying, okay, um, you got problems in your marriage relationship and you're looking at the other person, but it's time you stop and you look at yourself because the problem in your marriage is you. And his whole point is not that you don't have a problem spouse, but rather, even if your spouse is sinning against you, much of the problem is how you respond to it because you're looking at her or you're looking at him and you really ought to look at yourself. 
and ask, am I the right kind of head? Am I the right kind of husband? Am I the right kind of spouse? My dad blew me away one time because we had this argument about marriage and divorce and some other things. And um, my convictions on marriage and divorce have changed drastically over the years. But what was interesting is I asked my dad, because my mom and dad had split up for a while. And um, I asked my dad, I said, would you have divorced your mom if she would have committed adultery against you? And my dad told me no. And I said, why? I said, that's nuts. Said, she sinned against you so grievously, and that's what she deserves, you know? And he looked at me and he said, because I'd really have to ask myself, what in the world I had done not to meet your mom's needs? Now, he wasn't saying that he could perfectly meet the needs, but rather he was simply saying, I can't just point the finger. I've got to look at myself. I've got to look at what I did and ask, at least, am I partly to blame for any of this? That spoke to me tremendously. I thought he was an idiot at the time. I'll be real frank. I was arrogant and proud and boastful. But I learned over the years that that he was right. That we have to stop and look at ourselves. And so it's the same thing with our relationship with Christ. We at least have to stop and ask, am I the problem here? Is God not speaking to me? Or am I feeling a little bit off? Or just not feeling the Lord's presence because I'm not abiding in him? It would have done Saul well to consider that. But instead he conjures up a medium. Sins deliberately. The last principle we can draw out of this, I think, is I think just as blunt as the last one, which is this, that God is serious about his commands and what he requires of his people. Saul didn't take that seriously. Samuel learned that the hard way, or I'm sorry, Saul learned that the hard way. He was selected by God through no merit of his own, given this tremendous gift of leading God's people. And all he had to do was to say, Lord, you just show me how to lead. But he threw it all away through sin and rebellion and ultimately was rejected by God. God told him that. He said, look, your rebellion is like divination. It's detestable to me. As Christians, we know that God is gracious and he's patient with us. But if we're not careful, then he has to discipline us, doesn't he? I'm going to read something from Hebrews chapter 12. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. We went through this not too long ago. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. Or actually, we're starting in verse verse 4 here. For you have not resisted the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. In other words, he's saying, you haven't tried hard enough in your resisting against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment does not seem joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
I'll go ahead and I'll just stop there. Basically, what the author of Hebrews is saying there is that the Lord has to discipline us sometimes, and he disciplines us because he loves us, because his desire is that we might be holy. I wonder sometimes how Saul viewed God. When God first told him that the, that the um, kingdom was going to be taken out of his hands. And he recognized that, wow, this is the Lord's discipline, and he disciplines me because he loves me, and because he wants me to be holy. Then maybe the end result might have been different. And I think oftentimes as Christians, we kind of become a little bit numb to the fact that um, our sin grieves the Lord greatly. And we, we have a tendency to focus so much on the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of the Lord that we forget that our sin grieves Him. And I'll be real frank, I, I'm glad the Lord does not discipline me as often as He probably needs to because He's gracious and patient. In fact, Romans tells us that the Lord's kindness leads us to repentance. But sometimes the Lord has to then take out the rod. And that's what the author of Hebrews tells us here, is that when that has to happen, remember, it's God loving you because he wants you to be holy. And he disciplines you much like a parent does a child. And so I think as we look at this story of Saul, that should probably be a stern warning for us. That Saul constantly refused the Lord's discipline in his life. Over and over. And instead of simply staying where he was at, he continued to go down, didn't he? I mean, it got to the point where he was so self-deceived that he was willing to do things that he knew deliberately violated God's laws and commands. They weren't innocent sins where he didn't think. They weren't sins that were done in a moment of passion. They were done out of desperation and deliberately against his own conscience. Christians have to be careful of that too. Christians need to be careful of that too. So I know it's a bit of a a downer to end on a note like that, but the reality of it is we have much to learn. We're told in the New Testament that everything in the Old Testament has been taught to us as as sort of a tutor to lead us to Christ, and it teaches us. And so as we look at something like this, I'm going to call this a negative learning experience. Sometimes we learn from the positive things, but sometimes the Scriptures use as negative things. And I think this is a good example where as as we look at Saul, there's much that we can learn from him. Now, let's be clear and honest in some respects. When we look at Saul, we probably find ourselves going, but I'm not as bad as that. But that's just a, that's, those are just degrees, right? They're just, just degrees. Um, I'll be real frank. There's times I've done things that I knew I shouldn't have done. Um, sometimes I do them willfully and then have to deal with it afterwards. And sometimes I don't do them willfully. They just, they're things that we slip up and we do. And But either way, um, what God ultimately desires from us is that we recognize and we learn from that and that we ultimately then will look at him and be more like David than like Saul.